Hey, this is Pastor Sam. Thanks for taking the time to listen to our sermon series from the book of Ruth called The Broken Road to Glory. I pray that this resource will be helpful for you as you make disciples in community and on mission throughout our city. You can find more information about Sacred City Church at scmoline.com. Hear the word of the Lord from the book of Ruth, chapter 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there, But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah and the other Ruth. They lived there about 10 years, and both Malon and Kilian died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on their way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter for me, to, for, me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried." May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and the Ruth of Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. This is the word of the Lord. 
have you ever woken up and just had this reality strike you and say something to the fact, this, this isn't what I envisioned for my life. This isn't the way that I saw things panning out as I was sitting back 10 years ago and laying out my dream board, my vision board. What, I, what the circumstances that I'm in now don't seem to line up with what I was hoping for. I didn't think I'd be in this city. You know, I, I didn't think that God would place me in this city, let alone maybe if I grew up in this city, I thought God would move me on by now, somewhere more sexy, you know. I, I didn't think I'd be with these people like I, don't, I don't know what your marriage is like, but it's like, I didn't think I'd be married to this fool, you know. I didn't think I'd have this job or be in this circumstances, right? There's all of these variables. I didn't think I would be in this place of life. And we tend to have this different idea of what life should be. And when we look at our current circumstances and what things should be, there seems to be a misconnection there. And the harder things are comparatively to what things should be like or the longer the season is where there's this misalignment between what things should be and what things are, the louder our protest of our immediate circumstances becomes. We, we say with more and more gusto, I don't, I don't want this. I didn't sign up for this. And like at some point you just, I just, I just wanna get out of this. Whatever it takes, I want to move on. I don't know what this is for you. I, I'm, sure you. I'm sure this is a common experience that we all share. I don't know what it is for you. Maybe, maybe it's a, a season of life where you have a job that you really don't like. Or you're, you're in a, a grueling season of school and academic coursework. Maybe it's your season of life. I, I hear this a lot with people who are single. I just want to be married. I just, I just want to move out of singleness and have that next phase. Or maybe it's health issues. There's a relationship or a marriage issue that you just, it's like, ah, this is so taxing, I just gotta get past this. Or maybe it's even a matter of spiritual life. Or you, you, you experience these besetting sins that keep rearing their ugly head, no matter how hard you pray about it, no matter what you do to repent of it, it just seems like I can't get past this thing. You might feel it in your missional community. This, this feeling of frustration, of feeling stagnant, of just, I gotta get out. And I think we all have some sort of vision of the good life, like what, what life should be. And a lot of times it doesn't line up. Now, I, I think there's this really tough dynamic that happens. When, when you ex express this displeasure, people just say, you know what? This is life, you know, deal with it. Pat you on the back and say, it'll, it'll all work out, right? It'll all work out, it'll be okay. And like, if you're really in the heat of the moment, that, that's not very comforting. Like, really, do you know that it's gonna be okay? Do you, do you know that things are gonna pan out? So you, you're sitting in these tough financial times, like, I don't know, I don't know where the next rent check is gonna come from. I don't know if it's gonna pan out. And now Christians, you know, we, we go through and we have 
verses that help us kind of navigate. We have, we have stories like Genesis 50 where Joseph comes to the end of his really challenging life. He's gone through, uh, he, he got sold into slavery. He spent a lot of time in prison uh, and he comes to the end of his life and he can look his brothers in his face and say, what you intended for my harm, God intended for my good. And we can say, you know, maybe that's true in my case. Maybe the things that are going poorly in my life, God's actually working for my good in some sense. Or we go to Romans 8, chapter, or Romans chapter 8, verse 28, where it says, all things work together for the good of those who love God. And we can say, yes, that's true. We can look at Hebrews chapter 12, verse 7, where it talks about treating suffering as if it's coming from the hand of, of a good father who's disciplining us to increase our joy in him. And so there's a sense where we can look at those things and we know that, that it's comforting in some way, but that doesn't necessarily make the circumstances any less difficult, does it? It, do, it doesn't make the scenario we find ourselves in now any less frustrating or challenging, especially if there's no timeline. Like, like when you're in a season where I don't know how long this is gonna go. This, this might be the rest of my life. I have no idea. Now there are some situations where the Lord is grace, gracious to us and he, he does give us some sort of a timeline. You know, it's really a, a luxury. But when we don't have that timeline to help us sort of navigate, okay, I, I've got, you know, it's like you're a Palmer student, okay, I've got three years of just grueling academic work. And then at the, you know, later on, I kind of move out of it. It becomes less challenging, whatever, whatever that is. We have a timeline that helps us move through that and persevere. But, but when we don't have a timeline, which is an ongoing thing, we tend to start wanting answers. Like, when is this new chapter going to start? Like, when's this difficult season going to end? And we move to the, to the lush fields uh, and calm streams that Psalm 23 talks about, getting out of the valley of the shadow of death up onto the bank and enjoying what's going on. Now, but what if there is no timeline? Like, like what, if, what if we don't know? What if the answer to our difficulties is, it will be when it is? Right, that sounds like the most unhelpful thing you can say, but it will be when it is. We don't know. Only God knows. And so when we face these difficulties in life, the, a better question, rather than asking, when's this new chapter gonna start? When's this chapter gonna close and the better one begin? A better question might be to ask, how do I navigate what I'm facing now? How do, I, how do I go through this broken path of life and make the best of what is? What do I need to know to endure? What do I need to do to make the best of things? What, do I, what are the things that will help me climb the terrain and conquer the potholes of the broken road of life? Now Ruth, the story of Ruth gives us off-road tires and a wench on this broken road of life. She helps us navigate the difficulties and the uneven terrain. She gives us a wench to help pull us out of those moments where we feel stuck. And if you are in a season of life where you're like, I feel stuck, I, I need something to change, this might be a great encouragement to you, but if, if you're blessed, if you have this time, this season of life where you don't necessarily feel, like things are smooth for you, that road seems, yeah, yeah, we've got little things that come and go, but you know, life is pretty smooth for you. Well, well Ruth also gives us a wench which is meant to, to encourage us to be more sympathetic and more helpful to other people who find themselves on their own broken road. 
All right, you probably don't realize this, but this Sunday is uh, called Persecuted Church Sunday. This is a Sunday where the church looks across the world and sees that not every Christian gets to enjoy the luxuries of which we enjoy here in our culture. There are Christians who are being persecuted. There are Christians who are being killed. And a lot of times, I'm guilty of this because I'm, I'm the one that's like supposed to be leading the church in this mindfulness of this, be praying for this. A lot of times they slip our mind. We just get kind of caught up in what's going and we don't have a heart for We don't have this, this burning desire to help in whatever ways, even if it is a prayerful way, to help those who are enduring extreme brokenness and extreme difficulty. And so what Ruth's story does is helps us become more aware Maybe I'm not on a broken road right now, and you know, I'd submit to you that you are, maybe you're in a st- smooth stretch, but the road that you're on is definitely a broken road. Never is it easy. But in those seasons of smoothness, we get to look across the, maybe, even, maybe it's even looking across the pews and seeing other people who are struggling, and we get to offer aid and use our wench in order to help them. Now, historically, this has been what makes the church attractive. This, this has been one of the things that sets Christians apart from the culture and even other religions because Christians have this weird ability, this it, it's otherworldly ability to suffer well, to endure the hardships that life throws at us and to, to make it through with dignity and grace. It's a beautiful thing, but, but also... It's how Christians help other people who are navigating that broken road for themselves. Over the, over the next four weeks as we make our way through the story of Ruth, that's really what's getting unpacked. How do we navigate the broken road to glory? How do we help others navigate the broken road to glory? Now the book of Ruth is really an interesting book. This, this is a fascinating book. Uh, it's, it's, it's interesting how the book of Ruth is um, chronicled here in the sense that it's sandwiched between two books or even just a stretch of, of historical literature, of scriptures, that is dealing with big picture things. So we're coming out of the Exodus, uh, Moses, and then uh, Joshua taking the people into the promised land, this new place, and then going into the season of Judges where things are kind of crazy as the people of God, people are doing whatever they see rights in their own eyes and, and God sends Judges to sort of create some order and even then it's pretty it's messed up, it's bloody a lot of times. If you read through the book of Judges, it's not really uplifting. Uh, there's a lot of blood involved. And then you go to the other side of the book of Ruth and, Ruth and you see 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings. You're getting into the, the, the chronicle of the kings that, that will now, from now on, lead through, lead Israel. And, and what's so interesting in sort of dealing with this big picture thing is how Ruth kind of zooms in on one family. Like one particular, four particular people zooms in, or you could say six, but zooms in on this one family and it's such an intimate story. It's such a personal account. Now the main characters in this book, which, which is a unique thing in itself, are women. A, a lot of times the scripture is speaking of men, 
Israel was a, a, a male-dominated society, and in the New Testament, that starts to change, and we see this with the language of, of the first people to discover the resurrected Jesus were women, and we see this, this change in the culture, uh, but, but really, the Old Testament is very male-dominated, so to have main characters of a book be women is kind of a unique thing, and on top of that, it's believed, you can't necessarily validate this, there's a little bit of debate, but it's believed that the author of this book is actually a woman. So this is a really unique thing, and and on top of that, the literary content of the book of Ruth is pure genius. One of the debates about the book of Ruth was initially, like, is is this book just for entertainment, or is this God divinely trying to instruct? Because it's such a good story, people just are infatuated or drawn to it, There's, there's something relatable about it, and actually what we're seeing here is this, God is using this really great story to teach us something profound, and so the two are married. It's a beautiful short story that's meant to entertain and to instruct us, and what's cool about this, or unique even, is, is that there are no, there's nothing miraculous that happens. There's nothing miraculous, there's no audible words from God. This is a story that deals with the ordinary. And so in a sense, this, this book of the Bible is really approachable. It's really easy to understand. Whether, whether you're a Christian or you're not a Christian or you're on the fence, you're trying to discover what this Christianity stuff is about, this is one of those stories that's it's got like a zero depth entry. It's really great. And so I just wanna jump into it and and help you appreciate the beauty of the book of Ruth, but also see what the Lord has for us in here. So let's start. If you wanna follow along on the screen or uh, there's a a pew Bible in front of you, Ruth is sandwiched between the book of Judges and uh, 1 Samuel. It's it's a short book, so you might skip over it on the first time. Uh, but, But let's set the stage here in verses one through two. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country Moab. He and his wife and his two sons, the name of the man was Elimelech and the name of his wife was Naomi and the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. And they were Euphrates from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. Now what this is doing is setting us up, the story is it's in a time of tension. So regardless of what's going to happen in this story, the, the cultural backdrop, the, the, what's going on within the climate of society is very tentious. It's a season of judges, there's a lot of murder, there's a lot of wars, there's a lot of fighting, a lot of blood. And then on top of that, there's this religious tension. And on top of the religious tension, that's, because the religious tension is really based on the fact that Israel says there's one God it's Yahweh, one God, but all the other cultures, all the other societies say, well, we have our own God. And so there is this religious tension in this area of the world, and then on top of that, we're told that there's a famine. There's a time where food is sparse and needs are great, and then here we zooms in on this family from Bethlehem, Elimelech and Naomi, and they've got two boys, and they, in this season, they decide to leave Bethlehem, which is pretty significant. It's the place where God was, right, where he put his people in this promised land area, and they leave this promised land area, and they come to a foreign country. Now there's some irony here in the names of Elimelech, which means God is king, and Naomi, which means pleasant or lovely. 
It's ironic here that Elimelech, who means God is king, the, the God of their country or the country that they're from, he's having, is forced to move. I don't know it's, if it's forced, but he chooses to move out of that land and since enter into a place where the God who is king is not the God of that area. And then Naomi goes from enjoying this pleasant and lovely state to entering into this hardship. So there's a little bit of irony here and and what is a perhaps a lack of trust in God? They leave the kingdom of God to immigrate into a foreign country. Now in previous stories throughout scripture, God has used famine as a means to bring his people into greater blessing. Like when you see God leading his people through the the wilderness in the book of Exodus, they experience a shortage of water, a shortage of food, and here God blesses them. He opens up the heavens literally and pours down bread to feed them, gives them quail to eat. It's such a, a pleasant blessing. But here in this narrative, it seems like things go from bad to worse because here in this, this foreign land, they're fleeing from famine. They end up in Moab. Elimelech dies. And and Naomi finds herself as a widowed mom of two boys. And what happens here in this land, they try to integrate the boys, they take on these Moab wives, uh, Orpah, not to be confused with Oprah, uh, Orpah and Ruth, and being married, they're there for 10 years. Something strange happens in verse five, we're told that both of the boys die. And it uses this language, not, not of, of Naomi in a personal sense, but in this really like, when it calls her the woman, it's sort of this shell of a woman idea. That she's empty, that she's alone, she's incapable, and really the story hinges on what's next, like what's gonna happen? Because in those times, there's no social security, there's no retirement plan. Like, Naomi is in a vulnerable position, and it looks like perhaps extinction is what's next for her just a, a miserable rest of her existence. Let's take a look at verse six. Then she, that is Naomi, arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. Now what, what's going on here is this, Naomi, she sees, she's heard that God has visited her kinfolk who are back in the land of Judah. He, he has blessed them, he's given them food, that the famine is over, and so she decides, look, my future here is pretty unpredictable but I hear that God is at work over there. Maybe I'll go. And so she decides to go home, to set out. Now, I've got a slide, I think, if, if we got it, this map. Moving home is not a small task. Like, I don't know if you can see that red line from Bethlehem, Jerusalem, going all the way around the Dead Sea, all the way to the land of Moab. That, that's where they ended up. So this is a single woman at this point, which traveling there's a reason why back in those days they traveled in a group of people, a large group of people. There's security in numbers. Now here, we're told that, that Elimelech and his family, they set out just as a party of four from Bethlehem to Moab, and now Naomi is saying, listen, I gotta go home. And so she's opted to go from Moab. It's a long way to go. There's a lot of danger involved in this, especially as traveling as a woman by herself or even a group of women. 
And so it's a really risky move, but in this we see Naomi's decision here to take action. This is really an interesting story, that throughout this story we see both the reality of God's providence and God's sovereignty, but also this interplay between the action of man, right? The, the, the stepping out in faith or, or the action that people are taking in order to do something, whether it's a risky thing or it's an ingenuitive thing, we see this play out throughout the whole entire story. And what, what Naomi is do, doing here is one of those things. She's taking a risk. She's not doing the easy thing. She's not just sitting back and saying, hey, I'll coast this out and see how it goes. She's foreseeing the difficulty of what lies ahead. E- even in going back across that distance, but even the idea of integrating back into her own people. So this is, this is an example where Naomi is stepping out in faith. Now, I think there's something for us to learn here. Because oftentimes when we face brokenness or difficulty or challenge in our own path, we feel stuck, like, like we're stuck in a pothole. We feel like we're at a dead end and we say to ourselves or somebody might say, that's just the way it is. You gotta accept it got to deal with it, and under the guise of trusting God, we do nothing. We sit with our hands in our pocket and say, well, it, what will be what will, is what will be. Now, there are times, don't, don't hear me wrong here, there are times when waiting on the Lord, we're being still and knowing that God is God, is what requires the most faith. There are times when waiting on the Lord is the most faith-filled act, and it's just to be still and to wait. You might say that if you look back at their story, maybe sticking out the famine in Bethlehem would have been a more faith-filled action for them to take. Who knows? I don't don't know. We can't speculate. Ruth doesn't necessarily specify what was right, what was wrong. But we could wonder, would that have been a more faithful, more trusting thing to do? And so there's a sense where being still, waiting on the Lord, it, it might be the right thing to do if you have no control, if that's all you can do. Think of the story of Abraham and Sarah where, where God promised them that he was gonna bless them, he was gonna give them a child, they were late in their years. They couldn't really do anything to control that and they just have to sit and wait and be still. So there's sometimes where things are out of our control. But one of the gifts that God gives us is the gift of human agency, It's it's the ability to make decisions and to act on those decisions which may alter our circumstances. Now, if if you're coming to, this is what typically happens. If you come to the end of the year, um, you you go, some people kind of start reading these self-help books, think about how can I set up myself for a better year next year, and you start reading some of these materials or hearing these videos, conferences, and they start talking about human agency, the fact that we can do something. We don't have to sit back and be passive. You step up and you do something. Now, that's true that we as humans have the ability to change things within our own power. But Christians approach this idea of human agency different than secular people do. Secular people might say, just do whatever feels right. Go with your gut and do it. Christians say it a little bit differently. Like there are times where we want to take decisions or taking the decision and taking a step in toward a decision is the most faithful thing to do. And so to do that, we want to honor God in that decision. So we pray. We search the scriptures. What does the scripture say about this? And you know, if you're treating the scriptures like some sort of uh, like life manual that's gonna give you step one, step two, that's not the right way to take it. Scripture deals with things in principles. A lot of the times, there are some specifics. 
We take it to, to community. We ask, hey, can you guys weigh in on us? We, we, search, we seek out wise counsel to help us make these decisions where there's a lot of gray space in our decisions because we want to hear what God says. We want to hear what his word says. We want to hear what the wise counsel of those in our mission community, the Lord's place around us, can say and give us uh, actionable things that would honor God. And so there's a sense where you, you, you're, you got a bad job, like, you don't have to sit and wait it out. Like, maybe the most faithful thing to do or the, the trust, the thing that requires the most trust is to find another job. Put yourself out there. Your marriage is in a rough spot. You don't just sit and wait it out. No, no, maybe you need to talk to your missional community about it. Maybe, maybe you need to take initiative and find a biblical counselor who can help you navigate some of the difficulties within marriage or your health. Right, things aren't going well, and, and it's like, oh, I, just, I guess this is just how it is. No, you can take action. Go to the gym. Go to a chiropractor. Go find somebody who knows something and take action. You don't have to be passive when it comes to these, some of these things. There are times when taking action that would move us into a de- different direction, especially in the face of uncertainty, is the most trusting thing that we can do. It's to step out in faith. It's to say, look, this might go badly. I don't know. I can't see the future, but this seems like the right thing to do at the moment. I'm going to step out. I'm going to trust God and step out, and as I step out, I'm going to trust him all the way. So in your season, and maybe if you're in that season of experiencing the broken world, like what, what does it look like for you? Like Maybe you need to stay still. I don't know. I can't tell you from the pulpit. Maybe you need to stay still. What is it that you just need to endure and trust God and stay still? But what is it that you might need to exercise human agency to, to take a little bit of risk, to, to step out in faith and trust God and take action? What, what is that? What does your MC, what does the scripture say about? What, what, what is that you can step out in faith in? Now Naomi, she decides to take action and Orpah and Ruth uh, they, they get ready to go along with her. And listen, this is for them too, for Orpah and Ruth. This is an, there's a lot of uncertainty involved in this. Leaving home, now, now Ruth and Orpah become immigrants in a foreign country. Right? They're leaving the comfort of their own homes and, and going back with Naomi. There, there's this question of if their quality of life, now they're widows too, will their quality of life improve if they move back to Bethlehem? Or does it just make things worse? They don't know. Nobody knows. And Naomi realizes that this is a big ask to ask her daughter-in-law, and she gives them an out in verses 9 and 10. She says, she said to her two daughters-in-law, go return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept. Now this is a very emotional situation. Naomi's just saying, hey look, it's gonna be easier, you guys might as well just move on. This is an emotion, they're connected, they have this deep connection and Naomi says, I realize the future is uncertain and I don't wanna subject you to that. You make up your mind. You, You can go back to your home. Now in this and this sort of like blessing of them to move on, we, we need to note two things here. That, that Naomi acknowledges the chesed, the kindness that these daughter-in-laws have shown her. 
that as she's a widow, as she's lost her sons, as she's lost her husband, as she's in this foreign land, these two women have dealt with her kindly. And so Naomi says, I I see your kindness, and I'm at a point in my life where I cannot repay that kindness. I cannot repay you with the type of a hesed that you deserve. And that that word hesed is a word that's used mostly to define God's love toward his people, his covenantal love. It's God's one-way love that's not dependent on our reciprocation. It's meant to acknowledge his loyalty, his reliability, his kindness, his compassion, the fact that God is dependable and true. And Naomi is saying, I see those characteristics in my daughter-in-laws, that they have embodied this toward me. And so she says, I acknowledge that, I'm grateful for that, you have been a gift to me from God, but she blesses them and says, in in my inability to repay you that, I'm asking that the Lord himself would bless you that the Lord would return their hesed with his hesed, with his kindness. And we see something really profound here that in, in verse 10, their loyalty is undeniable. And these ladies, they say to her, no, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi says, look, girls, this is sweet, but, but you really should think of yourselves here. Like, think of your future. And verse 11, she says to them, Naomi says, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say that I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and we should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they are grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter for me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Now, this might seem weird that Naomi is talking about having sons, like marrying and having sons, and and Ruth and Orpah sort of hanging behind, waiting for these sons to become of age. It'd be quite the age gap here. Um, But but what's happening here is this story is introducing, uh, this culturally foreign concept to us is this idea of kinsman redeemer. Okay, this idea, and this is God's idea that he lays out in Leviticus 25, this idea that, that it's basically God's idea of social security, that if there is a son who marries and that son perishes, that his brother would marry, if not married already, he would marry that wife and in honor of his brother, he would inherit the, the land that his brother owned and he would bear children in his brother's name. It's a way to carry on the family line, a way to honor those who have gone before you who are, who are deceased, to continue the name, to make sure the uh, prosperity stays within the family and so this is how it would work. And so this is what Naomi is getting at, that, that I don't have any sons to marry you. I don't have any sons who can marry you and provide you the offspring and, and inherit the land and the property that my kids have. And so she says, you'd be better off to find somebody else. You'd be better off to find a different husband. And she kind of blesses them, and I say that the Lord would do that. Now, in verse 14, we see that Orpah, she, she leaves gracefully. She sees the risk. And this isn't like... We don't need to knock Orpah, because Naomi has requested that she go. This is her wish. And Orpah, she gracefully leaves, but, but Ruth does what's extraordinary. She stays. And in verse 16 and, and eight through 18, look what she says. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. 
And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, with her, she said no more. Now what's going on here? Now, before Orpah sort of goes back to like her own people, her own God, like there's a sense where Orpah's like reverting back to, to life before she got married and was living life and knowing this God of the Hebrew people. But here we see a unique thing with, with Ruth where Ruth is like, your people be my people. Like she's had a profound conversion experience it seems like where she's devoted herself not only to Naomi but to God. She says, I'm gonna follow you as you move back toward God. And so this extends far beyond her responsibility as a daughter-in-law to Naomi, but she is saying, like, I'm committed to you through thick and thin, regardless. The fact that her commitment extends beyond Naomi's life to the end of her own life, that she says, where you die, I will die. Like, when you die, I'm not gonna say, okay, that's good, I did my part, and now I'm gonna bounce to whatever seems more convenient. She says, I'm gonna be there with you, for you, behind your back the whole time. Now, this is so profound because what Ruth sees, she looks at Naomi and she sees Naomi's pain and bitterness. She sees the hurt and the agony that Naomi is and Ruth says, I'm willing to step in this with you. I will inconvenience myself, my own life, to step into your pain. That's a true friend. That's a true friend. That's a real friend. And we see that Naomi's overwhelming bitterness, her, her despair in verse 20, it's just, it's so strong in her life that, that her name Naomi, she said, don't call me Naomi anymore, don't call me lovely, don't call me kind, call me bitter. Call me Mara. You named your kid Mara. Eh. Bitter. She's saying, call me bitter. Now this is, this is really profound that Naomi or that, that Ruth is willing to step into this and experience some of that bitterness, to, to shoulder that with her. Now, in the in the bitterness, in the brutality of her broken road, we see in the person of Ruth that there's a glimmer of hope, that there's a little bit of light in the darkness. That, that regardless of how hard things get for Naomi, that she can count on Ruth because she has proven herself to be trustworthy. She's proven herself to be loyal and kind and compassionate. And so now as Naomi sets path on this broken root, road, Ruth is there with her. When we are bombarded by life's difficulties, one of the hardest things is to see the good. It's so hard. It seems like a blanket of darkness covers us and it's so hard to see the little evidences of grace and the little bit of light that pokes through. Now this is one of the reasons why in our missional communities as like disciples of Jesus, we practice indicating and observing evidences of grace. Like when life is hard, we, we make it a routine to sit down every week when we're doing our, our community prayer together within our missional communities. Like what are the evidences of grace that we've acknowledged or that we can acknowledge and see where God's been at work, even in the midst of difficulty? Now Naomi could have missed out on some of God's grace, on some of God's kindness that, that is 
basically that Ruth is a conduit of. She could have said, no, Ruth, you go back home and push Ruth away. And in doing so, she would have missed out on some of the grace. And I think that on our own broken roads, God is using other people. He's using means of grace to bless us in the difficulty. And a lot of times we get so stuck in the darkness that we just push it away, that we say, yeah, I don't see it, I don't acknowledge it, and then we just push it away. When we do so, we miss out on God's grace. So let me ask, like, are, are you doing that? On the broken road, are, are you pushing, are you resisting God's grace to you through community? through gathering together with the saints, through the everyday means of Bible reading and prayer. Are you missing out on that? By God's grace and by these ladies' determination, they arrive at Bethlehem in verse 19. It sort of like cuts right to it. It doesn't talk about the journey, who, how long it took them or how challenging it was. It jumps straight to, so when the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem, and when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? They, 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 they're finally reunited. And you think that just arriving at home in Bethlehem, this would sort of lift Ruth's spirits, but, but Ruth is really stuck in a dark spot. She, she really feels the weight. She's enduring so much difficulty that has left her with a deep bitterness that she says in response to them in verse 20, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, which means bitterness. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. Now one of the most compelling things about scripture, just the Bible in whole, in the whole, as a whole, is how brutally honest people are in the scriptures. Right? If you don't believe me, like, go to the Psalms, start reading through the Psalms and see the agony and the difficulty and the anger and the frustration and the lament that God's people have endured. And it's not like Christianity isn't like, oh, everything's good, brother, throw a blanket over it. God's goodness, just so good that it just, life is dandy. You know, it's like, that's not what Christianity is like. That's not what it's like, like you meet God and all of a sudden all your problems go away. That's not the case, if anything, you're gonna have more problems. Jesus, don't be surprised when the world is against you. Don't, win, don't be surprised when people are, are persecuting me, you on my name's sake. Like you should expect to experience trouble in this world. And so as Christians, we can be honest about it. We don't have to be phony. We don't have to say, oh yeah, it's all good, brother. Blessed and highly favored. No, 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 we can say, like, life is hard. It's so tough. And you know that if you're going through, if, you're, if your life is on this broken road right now. So Naomi, she's not being a phony about our hard times. She's not saying, oh yeah, well we made it back so everything's fine and dandy. No, she's like, it's hard. And it sounds like as we read this, she's almost pointing the finger at God, like this sort of accusation. And you, read, like you shouldn't be surprised by that if you read through some of the Psalms where there is this sort of sense of like, God, what are you doing to me? because they have like good theology to know that God's sovereign, that God has control over all things, everything in heaven and underneath. The heavens is under God's command and rule, and so there's a sense where she's like, yeah, uh, like God is doing something. Like God has brought me back empty. I, I left this place full, he's brought me back empty. That God is the one who is testifying against me that the Almighty has brought calamity upon me.
See, are, are you on your broken road right now and you can't even admit it? Like, like you're just pretending like everything's fine, coasting through it? like there's freedom, there's grace for you in acknowledging the reality of your situation. When we experience this, I, I, th- I think we have this tendency. Like w- when life gets difficult and the, or on the broken road where it's like, if God is the one who's doing this, if, if God's responsible for the way that things are playing out in my life, like I don't want to, I don't want anything to do with God, right? You go from act, accusing God and pointing the finger, it's God's doing this, God's doing this, to giving God the finger. Like, I don't want anything to do with you. We just walk away. Now, while, while Naomi is being sort of, she's, she's accusing a little bit, or at least pointing back towards God that he's responsible for some of the things that are, are going on, she is not being dismissive of God. She's not pushing away from God and saying, I don't want anything to do with you. She's being confrontational. She's voicing her heart. She's voicing how things are. But here's the deal, friends. She's actually moving toward God. That's the reality of this whole narrative is that she was in a distant foreign land and now she's moving toward God where he has been. That She saw that God blessed the people, her people back in Bethlehem and she's moving toward God. And really that's what I want you to see from chapter one. What we're gonna do through this, this sermon series, like I'm not gonna jump straight to the end because it's such a beautiful piece of literature that cutting straight to the end and telling you how this whole thing ends would be cutting it short. It, would be, it, it doesn't, doesn't do it any justice. And so here in chapter one, what, what does God have for us as his people here in chapter one? I think it's this. When you face difficulty, when you face the troubles of life, do you push God away or do you move toward him? How do you respond to God when you are on your broken road, when you are facing calamity, when the difficulty of life seems to be mounting up against you? Do you let bitterness or despair run your life? Like it's one thing to be bitter and to be despairing and like be open to God in some sense. It's another thing to let those things control you and drive you into a darker and darker and darker state where your heart becomes harder and harder and harder so that it takes God literally breaking you for him to get through to you. That you become immobilized, that your heart is so hard that it takes something profound to get through to you. I think that's something that we all tend to do. We become resistant toward God when things are hard We don't want to hear from him. We don't want to experience him. Because if you've got any bit of theology that tells you that God's sovereign, it's like because it's God's fault. Like God brought me to this place. Why would I want to do anything with the God who's brought me to this thing? So do you get hard and bitter? Or do you embrace the struggle? Do you acknowledge your circumstances for what it is without hyper-spiritualizing it, without diminishing the severity of the circumstances? Do you you embrace the struggle and see it as an opportunity to move toward God or even where God is moving toward you? And to pursue him with a new intensity to say like all this stuff in my life is falling apart. All this stuff isn't what I thought it would be but God is the one sturdy and steadfast, reliable thing that I can count on. Because if we see God for who he is, and, and this passage talks about God's has said, like that, that language of God being kind and compassionate and trustworthy, 
and loving. See, we can do this, we can move toward God because our hope is ultimately grounded in God's character, not in our circumstances. And so we say, look, God's character is that he is full of steadfast love. He is kind and he's reliable and he's compassionate all of the time. And he doesn't act in contradiction to his character. That God doesn't lie. And so whatever circumstances come my way, I can see that in it somehow, and and usually this takes zooming out from our own circumstances, I can see how God is being kind to me. And when we forget that, when when we forget God's Kindness, when we forget his character, our perspective on life becomes so small and we get driven by our circumstances instead of by God's character. We fail to see his grace in the midst of difficulty. But here's the reality, Christian. While, while Ruth is a gift to Naomi, this, this friend who's loyal, we have a true and better friend. We do. And when we face the broken road, we're navigating that that uneven terrain. We have a true and better route that Jesus is our companion on the broken road. That nobody is more committed to you than Jesus. He says he'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. He gives you his strength, his courage. He gives you the grace of his church and his word and his spirit to empower us and to lead us into a life of righteousness even when our world seems like it's falling apart. And here's why Jesus is the better Ruth because he doesn't just walk with us on the path of brokenness. Jesus gets in our place. See, Ruth says that God is testifying against her. Like, there, there, there's the reality that God can testify against us. That, that we have lacked chesed. We have lacked that reciprocal love or even that covenantal love that no matter what's going on, whether it be with people or with God, that we have lacked that kind of love and compassion. Like we have sinned. That we've lived these self-sighted, short-sighted lives that we can't see past ourselves. And in doing so, we've, we've pushed God away, we've pushed others away, we've sinned, and there's a sense where God can testify against us, and when God testifies against us, what happens? Jesus gets in our place on the cross, where, G, where God is about ready to let the, his wrath, his displeasure, the extreme cup of bitterness be poured out upon us. Jesus stands in our place, and he drinks the ultimate cup of bitterness for us. And so as Christians, we know, we know that God doesn't testify against us because Christ has endured that, God testifies for us. That in Christ we have our yes and amen. That that in Christ we have everything we need. That God aims to bless us with an unrelenting word. Jesus has taken the worst of it. He's proven how reliable and dependable and how steadfast his love is for us. So in this way, Jesus doesn't just get on the broken road. Jesus was broken. And as we come to the Lord's table this morning, that's what we're realizing, that Jesus was broken for us. And in verse 22 uh, of this passage, it says, so Naomi returned and Ruth uh, with her, they returned from the country of Moab and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Now this, this is setting us up for chapter two, right? There's, there's a glimmer of hope. There, there's this barley harvest that's coming 
gives us a glimmer of hope. If you're struggling, if you're in a season where the road is difficult, this meal is a glimmer of hope for you. That you're not alone. That God has a steadfast love for you, that Jesus longs to be your companion. Will you receive that this morning? Will you trust in him and see how God actually does use all things together for the good of those who love him? Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We ask God that you would do a work in us, that we would more and more trust in you to be able to look at our circumstances and not allow that to determine our steadfastness or our love toward you or our faithfulness, God, but we can look at your character and see that in all things you are loving and kind and compassionate. And would the reality of your character draw us toward you in our seasons of challenge and difficulty on this broken road. We ask this in Jesus' name.